You are listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Thanks for joining us this morning. You know, uh, State Labor Director Scott Murakami has been on full throttle since the cascade of jobless claims began pouring in. Add to that the stress uh, of efforts by thieves from other countries trying their darnest to file claims ahead of those Hawaii residents who need the money. Murakami says it's a shame to see people trying to take advantage of this crisis at the expense of those who are really hurting. What I can tell you is that we have continued our active, actively um, engaging in fraud detection um, all through the start of COVID-19. And that was some of the challenges in making sure that we uh, administered the trust accurately and, and properly, I should say. So we have detected about seven cases within our traditional UI program that we're investigating now. We have a speci- special activities unit that follows up on any type of possible fraud cases. Are those checks Sorry, that were ahead. paid out? You know, not all of them were paid. I don't know how many were paid, but I know a lot of them we catch before the actual payments go out. That's pretty much the process of what we do. We have heard of people reporting to us that they had they had been victims of previous cases of identity theft, and subsequently individuals had filed unemployment claims on their behalf. So. Um, HPD has been notified about it, both through the claimants, and I think our office has made contact with them. But if a, if any of your listeners receive a notification saying that a monetary process was run on them, that's an official notice that comes out from our department. So please, by all means, get in contact with us, and we'll follow that. Up. We'll follow up with them. And the cases that we have seen with that have been related to previous cases of identity theft. Have you heard anything from federal investigators at all? Not directly in regards. To a Hawaii case, but we have been in contact with them regarding the national scene, and I think it was the Canary Group that was going around committing some of these these fraud cases. So we uh, have regular contact with the, through the U.S. Department of Labor and the, the Justice Department, and they advised us as to any types of global, or international, or, or national crime syndicates that are running that are trying to fraudulently claim. Uh, It is disheartening because often prosecution of those cases can be very difficult and time-consuming when they're from foreign countries. It is very disheartening. I'll I'll tell you that we also had cases that we know of that we've caught where individuals had followed from other states. So we did have a case where somebody from, I believe it was Maine, had filed an unemployment claim within our state, as well as somebody from Arizona. And, you know, it's it's really disheartening to hear of these things happening. But, you know, it's unfortunate that some people, it just brings out the worst in certain people. It's very difficult to come to terms with things like that, not just for myself, but I'm sure for our whole community to try to be pulling together. You know, we've got a lot of people who are coming out to the convention center trying to help out, and it's disheartening to them as well to hear that people are doing things like this. You know, and all we can do from our side is remain vigilant in trying to stop them. But inevitably, you know, when you're looking at 250,000 claims that are currently in our system, you know, it's it's tough to be sure that everyone is going to be accurate, although we do our very best to do that. And there's a lot that I can't share about how we do that. But we do remain vigilant in, in monitoring these claims and making sure that we're protecting the trust the best ability that we have, as well as the federal dollars that we're paying out. What's the latest snapshot on claims that still need to be processed? There are about 63,000 claims that remain to be processed, and these are the ones that had some type of issue that was, or error on the claim that needs to be cleaned. Right now, it's less than 20%, uh, excuse me, it's less than 25% of the claims that we've received that need to be processed. Uh, The rest of them have either been denied or have been paid out. And we paid out a total of 140,599 claims. And that amount has come out to be $774,446,124. And that's both in terms of federal dollars and the state unemployment insurance trust fund. In total, when you include the pool program, the pandemic unemployment assistance program has processed 38,000, just over 38,000 claims. And that program has paid $177 million. When you total up all of the programs that we're running now, all three programs, we've paid $948,101,262. So we've paid just about $50 shy of a billion dollars in benefits to the the people of Hawaii. So 
clearly we've been trying our best to get through the remaining 63,000, which remain our primary concern. And that number is staggering. I know when we last talked, you were worried about running out of money. Where are we at with that? Yeah. So right now, uh, well, actually, as of the 20th of May, the trust fund had 399586532 dollars And that's because we're still receiving payments into the trust fund. And the, the trust only covers the portion of state unemployment insurance benefits. So, you know, we're, we still have funds there. We anticipate the fund expiring on June 18th. And um, I think the total amount we've requested was $1.3 billion in an advance from the U.S. Department of Labor uh, that will come from the Treasury. That advance, we get, it gets filed. The request for the advance gets filed every quarter. So we had filed it back in March make sure that we were prepared for any type of because we didn't know what exactly what the cash flow was going to be the situation was going to be like we filed it early to make sure we were prepared uh, in the event that we had a shortage within that, that first quarter uh, we will be filing another one of course when the next quarter becomes due so we're ready to make sure that we can continue paying benefits to Hawaii's uh, claimant and you had talked about you know running out sooner if you had paid additional monies and if you had just paid the basic number that you know you could stretch those dollars a little bit longer that, that's that's correct the first and the initial assessment we made was that the uh, the uh, trust fund would exp- exhaust on the 10th of May uh, there are a couple of things that were different with that forecast the first of uh, first thing was that we weren't sure how much we were going to continue to receive in um, unemployment contributions from Hawaii's businesses. So we had made the assumption that for the most part that would go down to zero. And that's proven not to be true. We are still receiving trust fund um, payments from Hawaii's businesses that are still operating. The other thing is we have to make some assumptions about the overall cash flow situation and when we'd be experiencing the payment. So those things actually kind of, when it really turned out, the way it turned out was that um, what we're anticipating now is the June 18th exhaustion date. All right, but hopefully we'll have that fund replenished with the federal money. Yes. And what can you tell us about uh, the cases where employees maybe don't want to go back to work even though they have been called back uh, because they're getting more money on unemployment? So a couple of things. Uh, Our employers follow with us electronically to notify us that an employee has has been offered work. And so... When you are offered work from your employer, you need to return. If you're concerned about the safety factors about COVID-19, we do have some information on our website under our, that's provided by our HIOSH division that explains which types of occupations have different risks and what the employer should provide for you for ensuring your safety. But um, those things being considered, and individuals need to go back to work when they're offered the jobs from their employers. Of course, there could be some extenuating circumstances, but for most cases, you need to go back to work. Now, an employer will notify us that uh, one of our claimants has been offered work, and what will happen is that at that point, if the claimant has refused to accept the job, we will, in all probability, terminate the benefits for that individual. Now, the individual does have a right to appeal that, um, but... At that point, if the individual is declined benefits, you have to remember that there's a lot of people out there looking for work. So if someone else accepts that job, you could rightfully be in a situation where you completely have disqualified yourself from uh, being a recipient of unemployment insurance benefits and having a job. So that's the risk you take. Absolutely. So, you know, there might be some short-term benefits or incentives for people to, to not return to work. But the reality of it is that you know, it is very short-sighted to do that. And, you know, you may get the check be- until uh, I think it's the 29th of July. But after that, all bets are off and you need to find a way to return to gainful employment. There are a number of people in the state that are on, I think, the 89-day contract or emergency hires. And I know there have been some executive orders about, you know, exemptions. I think the attorney general's office may have some uh, investigators that are on contracts like that. But can you talk generally just about how that all works? Because I think there may be some, like, teachers within DOE that might be on that 89-day contract. So um, as I understand it, we actually do have people hired on 89-day contract, and um, they can work, uh, I believe, full-time up to 89 days. And what happens is they don't accrue any kind of health care benefits, and they're exempt from Hawaii's prepaid health care law. So those individuals actually um, are uh, people who come on and help us with 
any type of episodic increases in workloads that we have. And certainly that's the situation here. We have uh, a few people on, on the 89-day hire status, but um, for our, our department, we have been hiring people uh, as regular employees with a not-to-exceed date so that we can actually have them better prepared not only for, to help us now with the current increase in UI claims, but also for any type of um, upcoming uh, issues that we may see related to COVID-19 or the, the you know, that are related to economic recovery. Well, are those folks uh, eligible for unemployment benefits after that contract expires? It really depends on the total wages that they've earned because that would only be an 89-day period. So it depends if they had previous employment. We would then look at their entire amount of wages that they've earned. So just being an 89-day hire in and of itself uh, would not necessarily qualify you. It's the total wages they've earned and over what duration of time. So if they've earned it over a, you know, a period of time that qualifies them for benefits, then they certainly would be eligible for it. But if it was, uh, you know, if it just was one time of a casual hire for 89 days, it, they may not have adequate funding or adequate wages within their historic monetary period to qualify for UI. Okay. And then I know you've got lots of help down there at the convention center, which is, you know, wonderful that people have uh, volunteered, a lot of state government workers, because they saw the need. Anything you want to say to all those folks who stepped up to help you? You know, uh, wow, that's, I, I couldn't tell them thank you enough. I go to see them every day. I try to go twice a day when I can, but, you know, um, and I try to make it a point to thank them for all of, all they've done, but... It's not just them, it's all of the supervisors behind them that have encouraged them to come out and help us. Um, all of the leadership at all of the unions that have come out and encouraged people to come out and help us, especially with HGA, HTA, and with um, UPA. It's, it's just really, um, you know, there's the one side of the coin where we face all of these fraud issues and these people who are, you know, just trying to take advantage of us. But, you know, when I go to a convention center, it's just really heartwarming to see all of these people coming out to help our claimants. So to all of them, I just have to say again, thank you for all that you're doing. That was Scott Murakami, State Labor Director, talking about the progress being made processing the claims of the tens of thousands of people who have lost their jobs due to COVID-19 health or health and economic crisis. Our unemployment rate has gone from 2.6% to 22% in April. The unemployment fund in Hawaii is set to run out June 18th unless it gets an infusion of federal money. Murakami says looking forward, even though the state UI system needs to be modernized, he doesn't see switching to a new computer system right away. He says if we are to do a switch, it needs to be done right. And it's now time to take a look across the globe. Professional English soccer is set to restart on June 17th, while total job losses in the U.S. total uh, $40 million over a 10-week period. Here's the BBC with the latest. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Thursday, May the 28th. I'm Jackie Leonard. English Premier League football to restart on June the 17th. U.S. job losses are now more than 40 million in just 10 weeks, and why copper is good at killing viruses. We now have a date for the proposed restart of the English Premier League football. If all goes to plan, games will kick off on June the 17th. The decision was taken at a meeting of Premier League clubs. On Wednesday, they agreed to resume full contact training. Our sports editor is Dan Rowan. The clubs have agreed that on June 17th, the two matches that are still to be played, which are Aston Villa against Sheffield United and Manchester City against Arsenal. Those two games will be played first, and then a couple of days later, on the weekend of June 19th, 20th, 21st, there'll be a whole fixture list of matches to be played. The German Bundesliga has already restarted, and La Liga in Spain is also preparing to pick up next month. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has set out more steps to ease the lockdown in England from the 1st of June. He said from Monday, up to six people can meet outside, provided those from different households stay two metres apart. In the US, the economic impact of COVID-19 has left tens of millions of people without jobs. 40 million people from almost every industry have applied for unemployment benefits in just 10 weeks. Here's Michelle Fleury. 
More than two million Americans lost their jobs in a single week. This is the lowest figure since the coronavirus began, but it is still enormous by historical standards. The high jobless numbers come as many businesses start to reopen, suggesting that it will take a long time to recover the jobs lost during the coronavirus pandemic. A separate report on Thursday confirmed the U.S. economy shrunk by an annualized 5% in the first three months of this year, more than economists were expecting. In France, nearly 850,000 people became jobless in April, raising the total there to more than 4.5 million. That's a record since the current register began nearly a quarter of a century ago. The head of the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has called for a greater effort to counter the coronavirus at a time when there is evidence it is increasingly spreading. John Unkens-Gasson said it was time to test people with flu-like symptoms and to increase measures like social distancing, the wearing of masks and hand-washing. The war against COVID-19 will be won at a continental level. Each individual country will have some victories, but the overall celebration of our victory will be continental, which means we've knocked off COVID-19 out of the continent. Otherwise, the continent will be paralysed. Among Vietnam's small number of cases, one is commanding almost all the attention from the media, an unnamed 43-year-old British pilot known as Patient 91. No COVID-19 death has been reported in Vietnam and the authorities are now taking extraordinary measures to save the life of Patient 91, as we heard from Tony Nguyen, a journalist in Ho Chi Minh City. He's been uh, admitted to the hospital since uh, March 18, got hooked on uh, ventilators. Because his lungs capacity at one point was uh, only around like 10%. And uh, when they announced that, like, you know, within just days, there was around like 100 people or so step up and they said like they want to volunteers to donate the lung. Buildings from places of work to shops and restaurants might be redesigned to become more coronavirus resistant. And one metal might play a vital role in that. Copper has long been celebrated for its bacteria-killing properties, and some scientists think it could be a very effective weapon in the fight against COVID-19. Bill Keevy is a professor of environmental health care at the University of Southampton. Copper alloys have been installed in hospitals around the world And when you swab those surfaces, they have 90% fewer bacteria compared to non-copper surfaces. There has been a study of four hospitals in the United States. They've all reported a 60% reduction in infection rates. It's a global brand. For 125 years, the classical concerts, now known as the BBC Proms, have been performed live for eight weeks in London's Royal Albert Hall. This year, they'll be very different because of current restrictions. They will start with a virtual event in July, but it's hoped the last night will be live from the Royal Albert Hall eight weeks later. This is the Coronavirus Global Update. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with a mission to create transformative experiences through art and committed to standing with the community during this time. Updates on reopening at honolulumuseum.org. Tune in to HPR1 on Saturday night as we debut Blue Note Virtually Live, performances from the Blue Note Hawaii stage. We kick it off with Henry Capono and his band celebrating the timeless classic songs of the legendary duo Cecilio and Capono. We'll hear beloved songs from Henry's career which have become anthems for the people of Hawaii. That's this Saturday at 6 p.m. Tune in to HPR One or listen on your smart speaker. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Carlos Amfroy, M.D., ophthalmologist and eye surgeon, specializing in laser vision correction, cataracts, glaucoma, and diabetic retinopathy. If you're just tuning in, excuse me, if you're just tuning in, this is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Bacter Quiz. Ha, ukawa, 
You're missing sports? Well, we got a question for you. Tua Tagovailoa, Marcus Mariota, Olin Krutz. Those are just some of the famous football players who have played at St. Louis School. One football player uh, may not have been highly recruited, but became a popular name for Notre Dame football fans. The five foot five Chinese American attended Notre Dame as a pre-med uh, student, and he decided to try out as a place kicker after his playing days at St. Louis. He made the team and was named the starting kicker for the 1988 team when he was a junior. In the season opener, his foot literally led to Notre Dame's victory of the then seventh-ranked Michigan. He scored four field goals, including the game winner with less than two minutes left to play. The final score was 19-17. to 17. Notre Dame went undefeated that year and won the national championship. So we want to know, what is this kicker's name? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff proudly support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii's people and places. Locations, welcome home. As we look to get to the other side of this health and economic crisis, we look to future studies to help guide us. HPR's Noe Tanigawa joins us this morning to talk about that. Good morning. Hey, Catherine. So glad to get to introduce you to Professor Jaris Grove up at Political Science there at UH Manoa. He's director of the Hawaii Research Center for Future Studies. Basically took up the reins after Jim Dater left. And you've talked with Jim before. Well, you know, Professor Grove makes the point that they don't predict the future. What they do is they study alternatives, especially possibilities that we don't expect, you know, and their goal is to shape the future that we really desire. Part of that, Grove says, especially in the COVID-19 era, is looking at futures that we're really not taking seriously enough. And, you know, they're, they're hard to even imagine we're so caught up in the present. Well, he's saying our assumptions are affecting our responses. And he's saying that assuming we're going to get back to normal could limit our preparedness for what eventually really happens. Okay, some scenarios. What about one where there is no COVID-19 cure? Grove says, what are the possibilities if we imagine a world where lockdowns are kind of regular, you know, every six to eight months, social distancing is permanent? As a political scientist and futurist, Grove is particularly worried about the democratic process in this critical election year. He contends democracy, as Americans have practiced all these years, is going to look different with COVID-19 restrictions on social interaction. What is that going to mean for really kind of the, the engines of democracy? Things like protests, forms of collective organizing and collective action that really require face-to-face -face interaction. It's an unfortunate reality, but it is the reality that democracy is not run by opinion polling. Very often, the will of the people is not fairly represented in the institutions that are elected to represent them. And then there's the other possibility, which has been a recurring feature in American history, which is that the majority opinion is unjust, and that to draw attention to that, to change people's minds, to insist on a better democracy has required a committed few, but a large number to collectively put themselves in the way. I mean, that's that's the history of civil rights in this country. That's the history of the right for women to vote in this country. One of the things that we're not taking seriously enough because we assume this is all temporary is that democracy will sort of be there when we get back to it. But what if COVID's permanent? Is to think seriously about how long you can leave democracy before it disappears. Yeah, that's interesting. Huh. It's Grove's opinion that 
assuring the democratic process continues is one of the hugest challenges before us right now. And we're just not looking at it squarely because, you know, who has the who has the mental space to do that? Well, you know, we have uh, seen, you know, lots of coverage of the different groups, you know, people who are just tired of being in quarantine, tired of being in isolation. They want to get out. They want to get back to their jobs. They want to mm-hmm. get back to normal. And it it's 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 going to be a little dicey because, you know, there's uh, the, the medical community that says, okay, we've got to be very cautious and do this right because we don't want a setback. We don't want mm-hmm. another outbreak. Well, you just wonder if the push and pull of the different sides on this has been as, you know, has been as, let's say, contentious in other countries. Yeah, and, and our community, our, our, our whole nation has been so fractured. Uh, you've got such great deep divisions, and so it, it is worrisome. Mm-hmm. And Grover's absolutely agrees on that. Basically, he says, there's so much going on. Erosion of our democracy is just something that really could take us by surprise. And we have a big election ahead in less than six months. The Constitution doesn't lay out three branches, right? It specifies and limits the authority of the executive branch, legislative branch, and judicial branch. But it relies on the fourth branch, which is the people. And if the only people who feel empowered or safe to gather at state houses are those who are armed, demanding an end to face masks, and implicit threat of violence is the only means for expressing political action, then that itself, I believe, is an indicator that we are losing our grip on democratic action. The very small minority will come to appear as a majority. And I think at that point in time, we'll lose a sense of civic order. And I think that that shouldn't be considered hyperbole at this moment. Catherine, I mean, it's it's pretty damning what he says about when only certain people feel safe to go out and protest. It's easy to think that they represent a larger group than they do. Grove says that we need to look at different ways to express our opinions. Yeah, it it, it is it is a little scary when when you watch the the nightly news and you see some of these demonstrations and and protests and some some people have guns and you're like, yikes. Mm-hmm. Did you? see that there was a sort of a driving protest through Waikiki yesterday of hotel workers regarding the reopening of hotels. Yes, and they're, mm-hmm. they're looking for, you know, job protection, right? Because uh, they're they're worried they're going to run out of uh, health benefits and that not all of them will be called back to work since, you know, we're probably not going to get a huge onslaught of tourists right away. And uh, the union, I believe, worries for those jobs. Right. Well, they might have been out on the streets standing very close to each other in a picket line in a, at a different time. But... These types of adaptations in terms of how the public expresses itself, Grove says this is what we need. And in terms of the elections process, Grove is saying starting in with mailing ballots, with mail-in ballots would be a start. Common Cause, um, the national organization, agrees on this, and they've put out some uh, recommendations for protecting uh, voter security at this in this juncture. But Grove says the idea is voting or participation in the political session uh, political system should be accessible through all kinds of means. And he says that the military votes by mail. Uh, they have not experienced difficulties there. But there may be other options, Catherine, maybe voting by text or by phone. Yeah. And of course, the concern is the security, right? And we've, uh, you know, heard about the president's tweets, you know, about, you know, raising questions about whether online voting is safe. Right. Grove says that there has yet to be um, credible evidence of that um, of the insecurity of mail-in voting so he says without the evidence uh, he really questions the uh, motives behind uh, a statement like that uh, grove claims that americans can file highly sensitive personal tax information online and do all kinds of things pay bills and so forth with their phones so designing a safe procedure for voting he claims is not a technical problem he says it's a matter of will and it's interesting because for those of us who are used to going to your neighborhood school, you know, the polling yeah. places to vote, you know, we're steeped in that tradition. And there's a part of me that still likes to do that, to cast my vote, <laughs> you know, the physical check mark or, or, or whatever on that ballot and seeing my neighbors. And, and there's something that I really cherish about that process and that right to vote. I, I know when I just got in the mail, you know, the... Uh, the, the paperwork for the electronic uh, the signature, you know, you, you kind of have to stop and, and wonder, okay, is this okay? 
and, and you wonder, you know, uh, about the reliability. And, and, and so, yeah, it, it takes a while, I think, to get used to with, with technology and the changes that we're facing. I so, you know, identify with what you said, Catherine, because, you know, when I would physically walk into the voting booth there in my little elementary school cafetorium, I would felt like I really had something in common with people in Omaha, Dubuque, Mississippi, you know, wherever. I mean, it's really something that we have had in common across this country. Now, if there are different ways to vote, be it text, mail, uh, or online, um, what Grove says is that the government needs to start proving that those techniques will be secure so that we'll be able to trust the results of the election we have coming ahead. And so what else does uh, Grove recommend? Well, you know, there are other scenarios out there. And he says, for example, maybe this could be a an apocalyptic moment, a transformational moment. Solving the COVID-19 spread could maybe fuel major advances in medical technology, CRISPR technology, genetics. So he says this could be an apocalyptic moment for us. Overall, he recommends design for not a specific scenario, but design for adaptability. That's a good point. We've got to be resilient as a community and bounce back and be ready to handle anything. Oh, yeah. I think we're starting on that. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much, Noe. Hey, thank you, Catherine. Stay safe. All right. We have been talking to HBR's Noe Tanigawa about what futurist studies can help us do as we look forward and look toward recovering from this crisis and reinventing our economy. Our reality check today is a story about one of the lifelines in our community, Young Brothers and its inter-island barge service. Honolulu Civil Beats editor Chad Blair is here to talk about that. Happy Thursday, Chad. Uh, good morning, Catherine. So we've got a story uh, by Stuart Yurton about the situation that Young Brothers is in. Right. And, um, of course, he covers business and tourism and, and other things for us. And the story today posits the idea that maybe the third time's a charm uh, for Young Brothers. And some people tend to forget that it wasn't all that long ago that the company asked the Public Utilities Commission for a pretty big raise in their rates. Remember, they're, they're regulated because they're a monopoly. Uh, this rate hike would, I think, have added about $27 million to their their coffers annually. Uh, and it was to, use, to be used to offset operating costs and then in, ensure that, you know, they get some reasonable profit out of that. But COVID came to town a couple of months ago, and now uh, the Young Brothers is saying they're really suffering some serious losses. They saw about a 30% drop in cargo cargo value uh, during this pandemic, uh, and they've had to cut back. They've had to reduce their sailing schedules to Hawaii, to the Big Island, rather, and to Maui. And, and so now their goal is to, uh, they have asked the Hawaii legislature for some of that federal bailout money, that CARES Act money, to the tune of $25 million uh, as the best way for them to offset their losses. Well, I remember when they came out with that rate hike request, mm. and it was like gulp, double, you know, double digits, and you were like, yikes, for the neighbor <laughs> yeah. islanders. You're like, oh, yeah. my goodness. You know, that's a yeah. hit. But, uh, yeah, every industry seems to be really hurting, whether you're a hotelier or uh, an airline. <laughs> We've got some deep losses here, millions of dollars of losses every day. Yeah, and so Sylvia Luke, the chair of the House Finance Committee, of course, she's playing a very critical role in doling out or trying to determine how to dole out this 650 or so million dollars that's available from the COVID aid, relief aid. Uh, and she said they're going to have to do their due diligence. They're going to have to do some fact checking and find out everything. But, and I think you know Sylvia Luke, she's pretty tight with the budget. She mm-hmm. doesn't automatically allocate this or that or appropriate this or that. But because Young Brothers, as she described it, is the lifeline of the islands, they, they're they really making, they, they really might actually warrant an exception to getting this money and getting it soon. 
Well, you know, it, when you talk about the lifeline and, and what it means to getting goods and services over to the neighbor islands, I just a, a, a funny story. I was uh, talking to a car dealer, and they said, oh, yeah, we had this you know brand-new car come in, and it was mm. supposed to go to the neighbor islands, and because of COVID, it's been sitting here in Honolulu, you know, and, and so too bad for the, the owner over there. But, you know, it's just that kind of thing. You don't think about, okay, it's got to go to Honolulu first before it gets to Kauai and Maui. Yeah, yeah. This isn't Matson coming from, from the West Coast. You know, I said, uh, Stewart said third time's a charm. There was another effort. Uh, right. So you know, the PUC, that'd be effort number one. And then, of course, uh, this is now before the legislature. But in between, there was a bill at the legislature from Linda Coit. She's the representative in the House, Molokai, Lanai, parts of Maui, of course, the very places that rely so heavily on Young Brothers. And she had a bill that would actually take some money out of the Harbor Use Users Special Fund and direct it uh, to Young Brothers to help them out. But we all know what happened to the legislature. Again, because of COVID, they had to recess uh, in March. And when they came back just last week or so for a special, not a special session, a resumption of the session, and they're going to come back again next month, that bill was not on the docket. Um, so so this is, this as I said, that explains why it's the third time that Young Brothers is trying to meet their, really trying to balance their books. And folks may not remember that Young Brothers uh, has a parent company, which is Seattle-based. Yeah, Saltchuck, and they've bailed Young Brothers out a couple of times in the last few years to the tune of about $21 million, according to Stewart's reporting. And the message from Saltchuck is no more. You know, it's a shipping company. It has other interests, and uh, Young Brothers is forced to do what it can. It is the parent company, Saltchuck, of Young Brothers, but... um, Young Brothers is, as I say now, hoping their best bet is with uh, the state legislature. Right. And I know uh, folks are looking out for uh, the residents on Molokai and Lanai who rely on that um, barge service. Yeah, particularly hard hit. And, and uh, so we'll we'll see. I'm sure we'll have an update to this story soon. All right. Well, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. To read Stuart Yurton's story about Young Brothers, visit civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, committed to keeping supplies flowing for businesses and communities throughout the islands, now and in the future. Matson.com. I'm Marco Werman from the world. Germany is letting kids go back to school in shifts. Italy eased its lockdown but remains vigilant. South Korea got its infection rate down to nearly zero, but they're still wearing masks. As communities across the U.S. work out their plans, our team is keeping track of how the rest of the planet is moving forward. It's the world. Join us. Starting this afternoon at 1. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, addressing COVID-19 by deploying resources to help avoid its spread, protecting those in Hawaii who are considered vulnerable. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org For today's Backyard Quiz, we look at a St. Louis school football player whose accomplishments helped win Notre Dame's last national championship. A walk-on football player, he was the place kicker for the Catholic University's 1988 championship season, scoring 32 field goals on 36 attempts. He didn't play football professionally, though. He went on to medical school and is now a cardiologist in Philadelphia. His improbable journey from Hawaii kid to Notre Dame kicker to doctor was chronicled in an ESPN 30 for 30 documentary, Student Athlete. His name is Reggie Ho, and he was the answer to today's quiz. Go Crusaders. And our Backyard Quiz winner, Scott, he he got it right. He was listening from a job site in Palolo, which is up the street from Kalaipohaku. So that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org.
While industries across the nation have ground to a halt in the wake of COVID-19, outreach organizations that look to safeguard our community's most vulnerable demographics have had to power through it all, sometimes with less staffing and fewer resources. This has been the case for foster programs, such as Catholic Charities Hawaii, which has continued their therapeutic foster care in spite of the pandemic. Husband and wife Jonathan and Danielle Mendoza have years of experience with foster care within the organization, and they say that the challenging times have complicated what was already a tough situation. They spoke with the Conversations' Harrison Patino on the difficulties of foster care during a global crisis. We're dealing with homes that have people who have traveled in and out of the state or the islands, so they're dealing with their own quarantines at times. We're also dealing with trying to have youth placed in our foster homes that are coming from outer islands, let's say Kahimohala or Queens or, you know, hospital settings. And due to the quarantine, it's a big struggle to try to make that happen in the in the usual way that we've done it before. Pretty much this pandemic has created a lot of insecurities with folks just taking on different youth if someone's traveling and especially some of our families are older so they're more you know hesitant. So I would imagine that the network of possible foster parents might be shrinking because of this crisis. Is that the case? We're at an all-time low. Typically we have like 15 to 18 families and right now we got like 10. You know not only because of the pandemic but slowly a couple families are hesitant to take in youth, um, new youth, as well as provide respite for current youth because they're just you know wanting to wait till this whole pandemic slows down. So it did kind of make an impact on a, a couple families with the pandemic. But throughout the years that Danielle and I have been here, this is our all-time low with the amount of families that we have serving the youth in our program. With less foster families overall, does that increase the individual workload on the remaining families? Is that how it works? Yes. Um, right now, we have a certain amount of families that are available to provide the care, like John was saying. And we are also asking other foster parents to provide respite to be able to maintain the placement that the youth is in. So giving everybody a little bit of a break occasionally to give everybody a break so that they can maintain the placement and the placement can continue without burning anybody out or without the kiddos getting too restless or board as well in one place. Yeah. How has this affected those foster parents who keep on in spite of this crisis? I mean, this isn't just a lot of hard work. This is a lot of emotional attachment for those people. I think with, um, you know, the recent closures of all the school and many child care programs, foster families have been at home with their youth all day now. So this is an added challenge to an already difficult kind of work that they do. So as Danielle was saying, we try to um, have the, the youth go to different families that are licensed but if they're hesitant to take them in, so it really makes it difficult for us to find relief for some of the parents to shift the youth to a different family so that they can take a break. That has been a challenge. Because our program is a therapeutic level care and we do use what's called a teaching family model, it's allowed our families to be able to still continue to teach the skills that they would always teach the kids while they're in their home. They're just having a larger amount of opportunities to teach. So some of our parents, you can see how they've just really pulled it together and are able to keep the environment structured and, and, and therapeutic, though sometimes the children have a hard time just staying in one place every day without change. Because the pool of foster parents is smaller altogether, is it harder for those kids to be moving around more? Are they moving around more in the first place? If we had more foster parents, they would be. But with the limited amount that we have right now, everybody's pretty much staying put unless there's um, an emergency or a crisis of some sort where support is needed in that way. They're pretty much staying put. There's a couple families that do work together, so they see the same youth, like, you know, they help out a family. And so there's two families for one or two youth, and they kind of switch off a little bit to help each other. But basically, yeah, if we had more families, that would really be helpful to be able to relieve one another to get that break that is much needed, especially during this time of the you know, stay-at-home order. Now, social distancing has really become the order of the day. What sort of challenges has that presented to foster programs? The social distancing, especially the quarantine issue, has prevented us from being able to have children join the program 
from outer islands. It's also, I believe, been a challenge for the kids in our program to have their family visits that they would have maybe typically once a week, face-to-face. They're not getting to, you know, see their biological families for those who do, and they're forced, you know, to, to have telecommunication, which sometimes can be very challenging for some of the biological families to have internet or have the equipment needed to do the visits that the youth do every week and usually need to help keep them motivated. I think also we're we're currently uh, working with the State Department of Health to allow like COVID testing or screening of the foster Mm -hmm. youth to help with the process of helping families who are receiving the children to feel at ease or just knowing that the kid was tested and is not, you know, COVID positive. Now, testing in any other avenue has been pretty hard to come by. Has it been difficult for these foster programs to acquire any sort of testing? Well, as far as I know, uh, our first testing occurred yesterday. So that was a a bright light that uh, the youth entering our program was able to have a COVID test done after arriving on the Big Island. Again, though, the, the results won't come for three days. And in the meantime, he is placed in a home where, you know, the family doesn't know the outcome of the test, but they they are willing to have him with no symptoms and us doing the screening that we've been doing as well. So that was our first one actually yesterday. You're right. It is a bright light, but it must be an, an enormous layer of added stress to be operating oh in this goodness. environment and not yeah. know about the, the possibility or the, the accuracy of whether or not these kids are, are COVID positive or not. Exactly. So uh, what usually takes a, a small village to, to accomplish now has just uh, turned into a bigger village because we're having to reach out to other folks outside of our agency to be able to have all of this done and and there's we've had tasks for task forces and and different things that we're doing to deal with the difficulties of recruitment and intake I was wondering specifically, you touched on this earlier, how has this whole COVID-19 crisis affected recruitment? I mean, initially you said it's not good. Right. I think for me, recruitment um, is done typically primarily through the word of mouth. You know, when families know other people who may be interested, they refer them to us to try and get them licensed and they become interested. Oh, I want to do what my uncle and auntie are doing or my neighbor is doing. Um, so it's really hard for us to advertise for, you know, recruitment of foster parents. So that's one thing that's been really hard for years is just to try and recruit. But I think with this whole COVID, it's even worse because um, a lot of times we get support from the schools. And when the schools shut down, you know, it's less that gets, you know, noticed. Uh, Many times we have school personnel stepping up to become foster parents because they work with these youth daily and they see the need. And, um, you know, there's a lot of things that happen through the schools that help the youth to become placed in a home. And that's where it's noticed when the teachers can see the youth day to day. But primarily, recruitment is done through the word of mouth with our existing families. You know, much of the state is eyeing reopening in a lot of different avenues, whether it's certain retail businesses or restaurants. Even the governor recently was talking about opening up inner island transit. If we see a a soft, gradual reopening of Hawaii, do you think you can anticipate an uptick in recruitment once again? I, I think so. You know, again, that, that's been a tough one. We are currently working on, you know, different avenues of trying to get folks recruited. And, and then this is one that we can, you know, announce, hey, if you guys want to help us out, help the keiki of the islands um, to foster, give us a call here at Catholic Charities. We're one of several different agencies that do this, and we'd love to have you guys come join us and, and be foster parents with us. You know, it's definitely needed on Oahu. I mean, to say nothing of the enormous need for foster parents in normal circumstances, what do you say to people who might normally would have been interested in becoming a foster parent but are a little discouraged by the uncertainty of the times? One of the challenges that we're facing is when we do recruit a foster parent and then we begin the initial licensing process, we usually do a visit at their home and get to meet them and everybody in the house, even the pets and you know, we, we joined together at that time to start working together. But um, since the COVID and the telecommunication options, it's really hard to even get a feel of the home. Because I feel like you, 
you can go into a home and just feel if it's a, a place right. that really wants to do this or if it's a calm place, if it's therapeutic. Um, but now through this telecommunication, it, it's really almost like a mask, a mask from, from getting to really know the people face-to-face and getting to get the feel of their home or see their neighborhood or things like that. That's I agree one with that. The, it's the definitely, you, you get that gut feeling and mm-hmm. when you, you're in someone's home and you can talk to them face-to-face, see their expressions and just watch their gestures. But I think for folks who are out there who are really unsure, you know, we provide an incredible training, the Teaching Family Association, that's the model we use. And it's like 40 hours of great training and we give you the tools to you know, help with the teaching and letting the youth learn these skills. There's all kinds of social, academic, and independent skills that we teach. We do have 24-7 support with our consultants. Um, it's, if it's needed, it's, we have ongoing training as well as, um, you know, daily stipend, and we compensate for mileage. So if it's something you're unsure of, we can definitely get you started to help out families with providing respite, which is, you know, just having the youth for a day or two or, you know, an overnighter or a weekend and mm-hmm. gradually get, you know, your feet more wet in the sense of having a placement. But at least in the beginning, you can start off with helping the existing families and, you know, talking started with them, getting to know the ins and outs of it. And we're definitely here to support families to help the keiki of our island. And that was Jonathan and Danielle Mendoza of Catholic Charities Hawaii. They were talking to the Conversations Harrison Patino on the difficulties of foster care during this time. That's a wrap for this Thursday. Up tomorrow, we plan to rerun a call-in show on the challenges of working and learning from home. Not everyone is returning to work right away, even though restrictions are being relaxed. Have you had enough of Zoom meetings, longing for face-to-face connections, wanting to see your coworkers, and to say, nice to see you and really mean it? How are you coping? Give us some feedback. If you got questions about anything you may have heard on our air, please call our Talkback line. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.